Good morning. My name is Caleb. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Romans. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 1 to 2 from chapter 12 in the New International Version. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The word of the Lord. All right, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to church service this morning. We are going to talk about the method to the madness. Method to the madness. And as we do that, I want to remind us again about the importance of engaging. For example, when Katie spoke to us and invited us to uh, listen to her words and think about the words that we were singing, I felt leadership. You know, I felt myself invited to partake of it at a higher, more engaged level, and that was good for me. And so I really want to encourage you to, the, to, to do the same during the sermon. And to sort of clarify this, I want to just give you two words that uh, I want to ask you to say during the course of the sermon. And those two words are first is amen. And the word amen just means so be it. And you express that, externalize that when I say something and it rings true. It feels true. And to complete your joy is to say it out loud. And so you say amen. And when you do that, it adds energy to the group. And you also derive much benefit from it. So everybody say with me, amen. amen. The next one is got it. Got it means, Peter, move on. Stop using different words to say the same thing. <laughs> Or it landed and you should move on. Okay? So it could be both an encouragement and a positive. Okay, amen and got it. Method to the madness. Here we go with the first slide that says faith and science. Now, those of you who have been coming to this church and have heard me before know that I really love science. I'm not good at it. I think I would flunk at it, but I really like it. It's a really fun and fascinating hobby for me. And I really like juxtaposing it to the practice of my faith. And even from my little growing up years, I've always felt that if God really created the world, he also created the principles, the laws of nature that govern the world. It's not like Physics and God are opposed to each other because God created the universe. And it really saddens me and upsets me and frustrates me when Christians try to divorce science and faith. To me, it's like trying to divorce mom and dad. Why would you do that? They work great together. <laughs> God, we just pray for Joseph's marriage right now. <clears throat> So, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, God causes the sun to rise on the good and the wicked. 
Now, if you are somebody who says theology and faith only and, you know, crucifix to, the, to science, then you would read that and say, see, the Bible clearly says it's not physics that causes God, the sun to rise. It's God himself directly somehow causing the sun to rise on the earth. If you are somebody who rejects faith but embraces science, you would say, well, that's just one way of speaking. But really what's happening is the earth rotates on an axis. And as it rotates, we experience 24 hours in a day. And it looks like the sun is rising, but really the earth is rotating. Not only is the earth rotating, but the earth is revolving around the sun. It takes 365 and a quarter days. And the solar system itself is moving around the galaxy. And the galaxy itself is moving around the known universe. And we get to experience just a tiny little sliver of all of that motion. And that's what we call a sunrise. And the question is, is it God or is it science? Is it faith or is it science? And I'm here to tell you it's both. It's not God causing the sun to rise in a vacuum just by some inexplicable power. But God who created the earth created the principles that govern the earth. And he created the universe in which the earth sits. And it is my really strong uh, feeling of gratitude that I personally am at a place where I'm not, I don't feel jaded. I don't feel cynical. I really feel like there's so much truth to be had in the world. Why would I reject one valid body of truth as a way to embrace another body of valid truth when all of it really fits together and it's meant to be so? I read a book that I loved. It's called A Whole New Mind by a man named Daniel Pink. How many of you know Daniel Pink? He's a famous, well-known author. And he, in this book, A Whole New Mind, says this whole world culture is moving towards a place, what he calls a place of symphony. He says, finally, our world is coming to a place where the left brain people and the right brain people are coming together. It's not just about hardness and softness, about art and science, but it's really about all of it integrating together to form a more cohesive picture of reality. And he gives lots of examples of colleges and different degrees that are being offered and the professions that are being rewarded more handsomely than they ever were uh, before. And it's all these um, Areas that are more symphonic in nature, more integrating in thinking and being and practicing. And I was so happy. My heart was just leaping as I was reading the words uh, on, on the pages of this book. Where are you in terms of your faith? Are you somebody that's sitting on one side saying, it's God and God only. It's theology, it's faith. It's nothing else. Or are you somebody that feels like, you know, church, the church has been ridiculous. It's science, people. Where are you on the spectrum? I want you to know, I am not ashamed to tell you. Go on record and say, I really think that time of dichotomized thinking is over. It should have been over a long time ago. If you believe, as we sang, that God is God 
creator, then you have to embrace both science and faith because science is just a description and investigation into the laws which God himself created. And so what we're going to do today, this sermon is moving towards a point where we're going to uh, have an opportunity to practice an integrating of faith and science. Okay? Let's go to the passage, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Let me read it for us again. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, that's verse 1. I'm going to pause there for a second here. And what Paul is saying here can be summarized this way. There's only one appropriate response. If God is who he says he is, and if God really created you, your particular wiring, and he has been, he has been overseeing the unfolding of your story, if he really is Lord, then the only proper response to this kind of being is to give your whole self to him. You can't compartmentalize. You don't get to have a part for yourself. But all of you, the way you function best, you will experience satisfaction, completion, meaning, and joy when you give your whole self to God in worship. This is what it means to live. This is what it means to exist. That's verse 1. Verse 2 then explains this. It says, if you want to do this, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put a finger on the word mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This idea of the mind serves as a linchpin to worship. When you have your mind renewed, then and only then will you finally be able to worship God. That is, know what God's will is. That it is for you to give your whole self to him. Because that's why he created you. You know what a linchpin is? A linchpin is what connects an axle to the wheel. If you pull the linchpin out, the wheels literally come off the wagon. It doesn't work the way it was meant to work. And the linchpin of this whole concept is the renewing of your mind, which means it's not just what you think that's important. It's the mind with which you think. It's not just what you see, but it's the eyes with which you see. It's not just what you feel, but it's the heart with which you feel. And this is so important because our culture really validates feelings in and of themselves. You feel offended. You feel angry. You feel sad. You feel upset. You feel disappointed. You're totally valid and fine to feel. But on the other hand, who cares? Because maybe you should be offended. Maybe you're upset because you're wrong. Maybe you are dumb. Maybe you didn't think things through. Maybe you're selfish. Maybe your mind is perverted. Maybe you are many, many layers deep into crazy. 
<laughs> Ken's wife's not here, so I have to say that for him. You understand? You feel what you feel. Fine. And feelings by themselves, in and of themselves, whatever. But there's a reason you feel those things. If you want to really understand what's true, what's right, what's good, the oughts and the shoulds in your life, in reality, then it's not just the fact that you see something, but it's the eyes with which you see. It's the mind with which you think. It's the heart with which you feel. And I don't know how many layers deep you have to go to get to the core, the place from which you emanate, from which you live and move and have your being. And God is able to pierce through the layers and get to the, the marrow, the essence of your truest nature. And the way we get to that truth is by the renewing of your mind. The alternative is there also, isn't it? Because it serves as a gateway function. If your mind isn't renewed, then you will automatically, by default, be shaped. You will start conforming to the pattern of this world, the way the world works, the way culture gets shaped. It's just sort of just free-flowing out there. There isn't a true north out there. There are trends. There are reactions. There are, there are anxieties. There are lies. There are deceptions. There's selfishness and greed and laziness. That's what you're going to be shaped by unless you're able to sort of be a fire line. Say, no, you will not get past this point. That's not true. That's not good. That's not beautiful. I'm not going to let it enter my mind. My mind is reserved. It's going to remain separated or sacred. That's the word holy. To be set apart. So that the mind with which you experience and judge and measure everything remains reliable. And I'm not sure exactly what to call it, but I think this is Peter's theory here. I think when we fell, the Bible tells a story of the fall of man. I think there was something that shifted from consciousness to self-consciousness. You know, we lost the ability to see correctly, the ability to feel correctly, the ability to think correctly. And so now the information, the data points we have aren't reliable. Your feelings, your thoughts, yeah, they're something, but they're not sufficient. They're not reliable. And then we have a passage like Matthew 13. 55 to 58 says this. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this, is, when, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Pause. They're offended at Jesus. Who cares, right? Yes, they're offended, Yes, that's a feeling. Yes, there's some thoughts to it. But is it reliable? 
Are they offended for the right reasons? Why are they offended? What's the motive beneath the motive beneath the motive? What's really going on here? And if you want to relate to each other well, if you want to uh, add value at your workplace or in your family or in your, uh, amongst your friends or at church, you can't just cave into every offense, right? You can't let somebody's offense be the bully in your life. That's not true north, necessarily. So Jesus offended people all the time. And yet he was perfect. He was right every time. He walked the earth without sin. And they crucified him for being perfect, for speaking the truth, for loving people, for being on the mission of God. They killed him. They took so much offense at him. Listen, you have to learn to be differentiated from the world. The world doesn't own you. Your allegiance belongs to Christ. So compared to everyone and everything else, you have to hate them compared to Christ. Jesus himself said so. If you don't hate your mother and father and brother and sister, your wife, your husband, even your own life, you can't follow him. Because at some point, those roads diverge. And you have to choose. So let them be offended at times. Doesn't mean you have to be unloving or uncaring. Jesus didn't stop caring for them. He was still trying to help them and love them, the next verse says. But the fact that they were offended, really, who cares? That's not the defining issue here. Next verse. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own hometown. And he did not do many miracles there because of their what? Lack of faith. Faith is a key word there. And it's one word that explains the Romans passage we just read. When your mind is renewed the way it's supposed to be, when you see as you ought to see, feel as you ought to feel, think as you ought to think, then you begin to have what the Bible calls faith. You believe something. You see something. There's enough evidence presented. You go, oh, that's the truth. I know it is. That's right, that's true, it's good, it's beautiful. I'm gonna pursue it. And that's faith. But turns out the people here, they weren't seeing Jesus correctly. They saw him and they said, Isn't, don't we know Mary? Don't we know his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? We know them. They, they grew up with us. And so they had this one piece of information but they didn't have the whole truth about who Jesus was. They weren't seeing correctly. They needed to have their eyes renewed, but their eyes weren't renewed. So they took offense at him. They didn't have faith. God was in their midst, and they couldn't worship. They couldn't attest to what was true and good and pleasing and perfect. Now the question, though, that I want us to Zoom in on is this. Why is faith the gateway to healing? Why do you have to see correctly? Why do you have to have your mind renewed to experience miracles? We see this all over scripture. The, the absolute non-negotiable necessity of faith. I've always wondered about this. As somebody who thinks a lot, probably too much, thinks too much and sleeps too little. Why faith? 
Why are God's hands tied if we don't have faith? I want to maybe introduce you to this uh, person that I've recently come across. A couple of doctors at our congregation uh, recommended that I look into uh, this guy named Andrew Weil. He's been around for a while is how I remember his name. Um, and uh, he's a medical doctor. And he's just, he's kind of blowing my mind in some ways, but it's really he's putting a finger on something I have felt and thought for a long time. And he's articulating it for me in a way that I can appreciate. Let me read this quote and then I'll explain what I mean. Um, this is not in any book, by the way. This, is, this was an interview uh, of Andrew Weil, and I uh, uh, transcribed a portion of it here. If you want, I will pass along this podcast to you, but there's some curse words in it. Not by him, but by his interviewer. Okay. The problem, he says, is that when we talk about placebos, it's in phrases like, how do you know that it's not just the placebo effect? The most interesting word there is just. Or we have to rule out the placebo effect. We should be ruling it in. It's the meat of medicine. That's pure healing from within, mediated by belief. That's what you want to make happen more of the time. The part of the brain in which our will is doesn't correct, connect directly to the machinery of the body, to the autonomic nervous system. You have to find some way of getting around that gap. One way is to project belief onto something external and then let it work for you. So let me um, list out some credentials to, as a way to open up your mind towards this quote a little bit. Uh, he is a guy who went to Harvard, um, uh, Harvard Medical School. He, uh, he's, an, um, he's a doctor, he's an author, he's a speaker, he's an advocate for, an, uh, for a category of medicine called integrative medicine. It's uh, a way of looking at medicine which says Western medicine is great, but it's just part of the picture. There's more ways to approach the healing of the body than just the way we in the West have been doing it. And so it takes a more evidence-based look at different ways to, do, to practice medicine. And for example, schools like Harvard, the University of Washington, and Stanford, these top schools have all signed on and joined this consortium for integrative medicine. And I say this just so you become more open to it in your mind, Okay. He is an academician at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. He's a Lovell Jones professor of integrative rheumatology. He's a clinical professor of medicine there. He also is a professor of public health there. As I said, he went to Harvard Medical School. And he also worked at the National Institute of Mental Health. And Time Magazine in the year 2005 listed him as the top 100 global influencers of the world. So his resume is thick and it's reputable, but he is not without his critics. He can seem initially a little bit wacky and woo-woo. I'm just saying it first before you discover it on Google. And he says this in this quote. Let me explain to you now what he is saying. He's saying we have a will. Using our will, we can control certain things. 
like I can move my arm. I can make a fist. I can breathe faster. But what I can't do with my mind is I can't make my heart rate increase directly. I can't do it. But if I start running in place right now, my heart rate will increase. I can do that indirectly. That is to say, though my will has control over certain aspects of my body, there are lots of aspects of my body, what he calls, what's known as the autonomic nervous system, that I can't control. My will doesn't have direct access to that. There is a gap. And he says what things like medicine does is the practice of medicine isn't about healing the body. It's about helping the body to heal itself. Right? We aid, we facilitate, we catalyze healing in our body, but we don't, we don't, medicine doesn't directly do. What medicine does is it bridges that gap between our willful mind and the autonomic nervous system, which controls functioning like heart rate and lots of other areas. And this is just Peter's theory here again, but I think that's maybe part of the fall. What we, what we may uh, refer to as the subconscious, maybe we had full uh, connection to the fullness of our consciousness. Maybe we had that, and we lost that, and that was part of what it meant that we died when we rebelled against God. And he gives examples, lots of them, and all of them uh, sort of uh, backed up by research and things. And if it's just anecdotal, by the way, the word anecdotal just means unpublished. So he tells you if it's unpublished, or he tells you if it's just experiential, right? But he talks about placebos in this interview. And he gives lots of uh, research that you can look into to attest to the reality of the placebo effect. And he says, when, when, you give somebody Advil that has a headache, and when you give somebody a sugar pill that has a headache, there's an impact of the sugar pill on the person's ability to be cured of the headache. And what he says is, that's just the person externalizing their belief onto something. They place their faith into the sugar pill, or maybe a medical professional with authority, and then that helps that sort of externalizing of the belief helps bridge the gap between the willful mind and the autonomic nervous system because it's the brain that does the healing. It's not the Advil that does the healing. So another example he gives uh, is uh, drugs. He says, no drug has ever gotten you high. All drugs do is get your brain to release the chemical which it makes to get you high. And what drugs do is it, it bridges the gap, so to speak. Allows your body to do what only it can do. Now, this is really interesting to me. He has other examples about uh, authority figures like EMTs. When an ambulance shows up and they make a comment, this person is unconscious and they say, oh boy, this guy's a goner. That tends to have an effect on what happens to the patient that's in the ambulance. Because an authority figure spoke. Now, you look like you don't believe me. And you don't have to. Go read the evidence for yourself. I listened to the interview, and then I went and found stuff that he was talking about. And I read the research for myself, and my mind was blown. Reliable sources. Now, what I am extracting 
from this is not the whole uh, body of specifics that he mentions, but the part that's interesting and relevant for me at this time in my process of understanding this is this. I understand that there's a gap. And it's really interesting to me that somebody like a secular person like Andrew Weil would say, use words like belief and say, there's countless examples of how when people externalize their faith and put their faith in something other than themselves, it gives us access to our autonomic nervous system that can facilitate healing that the body can do. And that's interesting to me because that's not in opposition but in parallel to what the scriptures teach about faith. Here's a medical doctor with a long resume that says the fact that patients believe something and that causes things to happen is exactly what the Bible teaches. That's what's interesting to me. So I want to invite us to kiss here. Keep it simple, saints, suckers. I don't know, whatever word you want to use. James chapter 5 says this. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray. When you pray, what does it mean? What are you doing when you're praying? You are communicating. You're externalizing your faith onto something beyond yourself. Nobody who was competent in one specific thing prayed. How many of you put on shoes this morning? How many of you put it on successfully? <laughs> Did you pray? Did you feel a need to? Why not? Because you got it, right? But you pray when you're at the end of yourself. So you're externalizing faith onto something else. Elders of the church to pray with them and anoint them with oil. What's the whole business with anointing with oil? Now, Dr. Weil will tell you maybe there's some medicinal benefit to oil itself. Some of you do. How many of you do essential oils? There you go. Right? But beyond the medical effect of essential oils, it's an act that it helps externalize, make real. It's adding physicality to help you believe. In the name of the Lord. Why in the name of the Lord? Why not in your own name? How many of you have, end, have ever ended a prayer in your own name? You know, in Peter's name, I, why would we never do that? Why should we never do that? Because there is no authority beyond the human being when we pray in your own name. We try the human thing. That's why we're praying. Why would we pray in our name? We are appealing to a higher authority. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. It's an act of submission. It's an act of asking for mercy and kindness from one who has power. And explaining this as, and the prayer offered in faith. This is summing up all that praying, anointing, name stuff here. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up if they have sinned they will be forgiven. I think this way of understanding sin opens up a whole sort of bigger idea of sin for me. Sinning is sort of this gap, this increase in gap, you know, that we've been talking about. And the gap is so big, we can't bridge it anymore. I think that's what sin is. That's what sin has done. And then look at this next uh, verse. This is really important here. 
Um, Isaiah 53, 5 says this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is so important because I'm a follower of Christ. I really believe in my heart of hearts that the death of Christ was necessary. Meaning, when we talk about healing and faith and bridging the gap and bringing Dr. Weil into this and all that, we're not just tapping into some kind of personless, nameless, costless mechanism or principle or some secret. But we are talking about love. We're talking about a person who created us out of love. And his desire to heal is out of love. And the exercise of his power is from a place of love. And so that's why if you are a Christian person, everything is different. You're not superstitious. I mean, we can use the word luck, but you in some in part of your mind, you have to believe it's not really luck. It's really grace. It's really the unfolding of God's will. There's a loving being intervening in your life. And so you believe this. You believe in a relationship with God himself, the creator. And when you believe this, then you have to understand that belief rests not on your works, not on your goodness, but on Christ who gave himself for you. That's the basis of your asking. That's the reason you can even think Godwardly. Because it's through his piercing, through his crushing, through the punishment that was put on him by his wounds. It's Christ who bridges the gap. And so we externalize our faith onto Christ, not a principle, but a person, onto a love, not onto a law. So know this. You don't play games with God. You don't have to just say the right incantation or know the spell or something can't bargain with God. You simply say, God, you love me. You say so. You died to prove it. And so here I am. And if you healing me is part of your story for me and the timing is right, then I trust you to do that. And the way I'm going to express that openness and trust is simply by asking in your name. And that's ultimately the power with which we try to bridge that gap. So here's what I want us to do. Um, I want you to have the right spirit for the next thing that we're going to do. And we're going to do it, integrate it with the communion that's set before us today. But let me say a word here uh, about our country. Our country right now needs healing. We are divided. It's rich against poor. It's white against black. It's majority against minority. It's the right versus the left. It's the liberal versus the conservative. It's the suburban versus the city. It's the middle of the country and the south of the country versus the coast. And that's in the air. It's in the water. And you, my Christian friends, 
If you are interested in what God is doing, if you're interested in the healing work that God is engaging in, then he will use you to heal. And if you're not, if you just want to be part of the fight and not part of the reconciliation, then you have no place with God's work, not in the country and not even in your life. I want to invite you to get on board. Invite into your being the spirit of healing. Don't fall for the trap of fighting the fight when we have the power to heal. Today, you have the power to wound or to heal. And so with that spirit of hunger for healing, not just for yourself and not just, uh, you know, for the things that are immediately around you, I want you to expand your consciousness beyond your tiny little life and say, God, you die to heal me, and I want to be an agent of your healing. Anywhere I go, everywhere I go, may healing flow through me. May I be one who can bridge the gap. So here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to ask you to close your eyes. And I want you to, with your mind's eye, put a finger on C, with your mind's eye, an area of pain or sadness or injustice or grievance or fear or doubt, despair. It could be your physical body. It can be your social network, somebody in your life. It can be a situation at work. It can be something about our country or about the world. Scriptures teach us that ultimately healing will flow and God will wipe every tear from everyone's eyes and everything wrong will be made right. But until that time, it is the people of God that have been called to stand in the gap. And so two things I want you to do. I want you to say, yes, God, I want to be one who stands in the gap. I want to be a healer and not a herder. So that's one. And then second, I want you to say, God, heal me of this. Heal me of this. Picture it. I'm going to read the words of communion for us. I want, I want you to keep on praying. Luke 22, verse 19 to 20 says this. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Servers, I want to invite you to come forward. Denny. Keep on praying. And as you come up to take communion, 
I want you to, with your mind's eye, picture you taking in Christ and his healing power for you and for the nations. And if you need a little bit more faith and externalizing it onto me would help after you take communion, come on up to the stage. In one sentence, tell me what you're praying for and I'll pray with you. And then you can return to your seats. So as you are ready, please come forward and receive communion today.